2: It is Political Rewind. We're here on a Monday uh, afternoon, if you're watching us or listening to us in real time. And we're really excited uh, because for the first time, after two years of planning, demolition, construction, running all of the cabling, uh, doing all of the engineering work, we are in our brand new radio studio And uh, we're excited about being here. You can watch us on Facebook Live today by going to the GPB news page on Facebook to do that. And and I hope you will uh, join us uh, that way today. Uh, Adam Woodleaf, uh, who oversaw a lot of this project, Tom Barclay, uh, two of the staffers here are in our control room, our brand-new control room. And I uh, give a shout-out to them for finally getting us here Uh, In the studio, Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the Atlanta General Constitution, is with us today, as he is on Mondays and Fridays. He uh, writes in the Wednesday and Sunday paper and oversees the Political Insider blog. Pretty cool, huh? New car rules
3: apply. No milkshakes or french fries (laughs) for the next two, three months allowed in this
2: room. Yeah, I came in here with a cup of coffee this morning for a rehearsal, and Adam Woodley, I said, is there a cup, a cover on that coffee? Yes, there is. He was very nervous about what I might do. Uh, Professor Audrey Haynes is with us as well today. Professor of political science at the University of Georgia. She also oversees the applied political science program at the University of Georgia. Not only oversees it, you created it. uh, And it's all about putting your students, if they so choose, into a track in which they can become professionals in the world of politics.
0: That is correct. I, I would I would argue that um, while I was the first to direct it, and my um, my uh, imprint is on the program, I give uh, most of the credit to Chuck Bullock and actually a host of alumni who really got together and gave us a lot of feedback. About the
2: legendary, the legendary Charles Bullock. Yes. <laughs> okay. Thank you.
0: One hundred and three years old today. No, sitting, I'm just
2: kidding. No. <laughs> sitting next to you is an Athens native. Yes. Michael Thurman, who, of course, is the CEO of DeKalb County. That's just uh, the latest of his many credentials in the world of elected politics. Uh, Mike Thurman? You grew up in Athens, Georgia. That's where you started your political career as a state rep way back in the
1: what? Back in eighteen sixty, <laughs> one of the Reconstruction legislators. No, great to be with you, Bill. Yeah, is your you still a family out there? Oh yeah, I have sisters and brothers and cousins and nieces and nephews all there and. Uh, Hello to everyone. But yeah. you can't do this on public radio. You yeah, can't you can do say hi. Outs. No, you can say yeah, hi. Yeah. Hello, everyone yeah. in Athens. Yeah. OK. Right. Oh, gladiators.
2: Uh, Heath Garrett, uh, Republican strategist, uh, political consultant. Uh, you have not been with us uh, recently, and I'm really glad you're back. You've been pretty busy, I
4: guess. Been busy with the election cycles are uh, gearing up and had a great uh, trip to Havana, Cuba.
2: Tell us, you know what, you started to talk about that one before we came on the air. Just really quickly, it's a fascinating thing you're doing.
4: It's really fascinating. Uh, our church is interested in doing mission trips down there, but obviously mm-hmm. I, I went as the chief of staff for Senator Isaacson about 12 years ago with a group of journalists, and uh, it's just uh, it's an interesting country. Socialism and capitalism, uh, a proxy for the Cold War and probably for the new version of the Cold War because China and Russia are still very engaged in cuba which is just 90 miles off of the u.s coast
2: yeah well we're glad you're back we've missed you uh heath uh jim galloway let's start uh you are fresh from atlanta rotary we downtown rotary whatever you want to call it, it it's kind of the you know rotary on steroids in georgia it's all the ceos and other important people who We only get to see from a distance unless we're having a lunch at Rotary. This is this
3: is ground zero in Rotary world.
2: So uh, David Perdue was the speaker. And in just a minute, I'd love for you to tell us uh, about uh, his remarks and we'll all talk about them. But but to get to that, uh, let me say that uh, we learned this morning. uh, In fact, we learned it in the AJC that when President Trump comes to Atlanta on Friday, he will be coming largely in support of David Perdue, which isn't surprising, but what is interesting and important for, for the Republicans is he has now started a joint committee with David Perdue to help Purdue raise money. It's the first of what we imagine are gonna be any number of partnerships that the president's fundraising group puts together to help incumbents in the Senate particularly, but he starts with Perdue, they're going to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars, presumably. So, this shows us just how close the relationship is between Trump and Purdue. And
3: and and look, you have to point out the fact that that very likely we're going to have uh, the, the House is going to impeach Donald Trump. Very, and if that's the case, then there is going to be a trial in the Senate. Yeah. And uh, and David Purdue is going to be one of the jurors. Yeah. And and it's 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 an interesting, real interesting connection between campaign finance and. Uh, and, and this trial now,
2: I you know that's a really interesting point, um, Heath. Uh, th- there's been some writing about that this past week. Really, that, that the president is starting to put money into Senate campaigns uh, to assure, or he hopes, or the writers presume, to make sure they remain loyal to him when the trial begins.
4: I think that that's maybe a stretch too far. I mean, David Perdue is one of the five or six Senate seats in the country that was already targeted by the Democrats. And so it would be natural for a Republican president to want to invest in and do that. And of course, I don't think there's any question about David Perdue's loyalty, whether the president came or not. Uh, David Perdue made a decision that he was going to be with the president. He's a full-throated defender of the president, has been from day one. And said, you know, uh, once pregnant, he's not going to try to dance around that. I mean, even so much so that he was on television. Well, he was on with, Bre- you know, with, with Brett Bear, yeah. And then Bre- Brett Bear defending him and those kind of things. However, it does show you the power of the presidency to raise money. And uh, he's absolutely going to go out and defend his defenders. I think that David Perdue's number one in that line.
2: All right. Before I bring uh, Michael Thurman and-, and Audrey Haynes in, uh, why don't you add to this conversation, Jim, by telling us what Perdue did. Did and did not talk about to Rotary today. All right.
3: Well, this was it it it, it. it it number one. It tells you a whole lot about David Perdue's strategy, and it also tells you a lot about what the what he thought the group in front of him wanted wanted to hear. Uh, he was a. This was. I mean, in over over seventeen minutes, the one word he never said was was impeachment. Uh, he mentioned Trump once at the very very end. Uh, he he spoke about. Uh, the need for bipartisanship in in uh, Washington, uh, the need for people uh, to put service above self, which is kind of riffing off the rotary uh, 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 motto, uh, which uh, kind of gets to the heart of the Ukraine uh, uh, investigation here. Uh, he, he said he, he, he chastised extremism on both sides. And he said if, you know, if he can watch Rachel Maddow, well then, uh, then, then other people ought to be able to watch uh, Fox News for an opposing opinion.
2: Interesting. All right. Michael and then Audrey, what do you think about what you just heard?
1: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, in, in all fairness, though, if you think about uh, Senator Perdue in terms of his public statements, that's very similar to where he's been uh, since he first introduced himself more or less into Georgia politics. Uh, on the earlier issue regarding the financing apparatus that's been set up, uh, that's unusual. Uh, but it also speaks to the fact that the president can raise money, but he may or may not be a benefit on the campaign trail. It's what Jim just explained. There's a, it's a two opportunities here to raise money, but at the same time, limit exposure in a state that's trending uh, towards a more purple uh, t- yeah, no no yeah no you're right it. you're
3: right he, i mean he did not deny trump but he 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 very much wanted to establish uh, his his own his own persona out there on the uh, in in front of the rotary yeah but i think
2: michael makes an interesting point audrey uh he'll be glad to raise money with him but um didn't want to talk much about impeachment or the president in front of that group of business people most of whom you would assume are more likely Republican voters than Democratic voters, although I don't know that for a fact. But I think given the composition of the group, it is quite possible.
0: Well, I'm sure that he had read the room correctly. There are a lot of people who want to talk about getting things done when they see things not getting done. As Heath said, I'm not surprised that he would be um, working to support senators in states where there might be some chance of – Uh, a seat challenge, although I think most of the data suggests that Purdue is in pretty good shape uh, in terms of his uh, status, likelihood of winning or not. But a lot of things could change. We don't know. I I will say this. He's making a strategic choice, and he's playing it, I think, carefully. He is someone who doesn't always vote with Trump. The Senate has, at times, uh, signaled to Trump that we don't like this behavior. There's some signaling of that going on right now with um, some of the Activities going on regarding impeachment and their strategy with it. Um, but at the same time, they know that they maintain their power if Trump stays in power. And that is good for them. So we're going to see that. But
2: So, uh, Jim, this, this uh, event on Friday, it's 2800 bucks just to get in the door. It's $100,000 per person if you want to be part of some roundtable discussion. I don't know that we know what the substance uh, or, you know, supposed substance of that roundtable will be. And then it's $35,000 to get your picture made with the president. As I said, they ought to be raising a lot of money. Yeah,
3: you know, I mean, with the, with, with the decline of film, you'd think uh, the processing
2: uh, Uh, Price would go down. Uh, (laughs) 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 Uh, Uh, Mike, you know, that raises an interesting question. You've got a number of Democrats already lined up for what we call Senate seat number one. Um, Teresa Tomlinson being the first one to jump in. Uh, Ossoff, John Ossoff is in the race. Ossoff has started to raise what appears to be, you know, the kind of money you would expect to see for someone who is a respectable, responsible kind of uh, candidate for for that race or somebody who can say I can raise money uh, Teresa Tomlinson has fallen a bit short does do the figures of uh, the kind of money that they're going to raise for Purdue uh, signal any reason why Democrats should really be worried about the, having the resources to take on Purdue uh, next fall
1: well first uh, he's a Republican incumbent senator with a Republican president and a Republican majority Senate. Consequently, there's an automatic inbred advantage to that in terms of raising money. A race of this magnitude, you you can't raise 20 or 30 million dollars just in Georgia. Uh, Let's be clear. But Senate campaigns, and I learned to my own dismay, thanks to Heath, are national. (laughs) You ran in 2010,
2: just to be sure.
1: And I I'm just learning to be able to sit in the room with him now. But, you know, <laughs> no, nah, we've been to lunch and breakfast many times we're since then. Friends. You were running but for the
2: Isaacson. Scene. I was running for the Isaacson. Go ahead. So <laughs> it's a national campaign.
1: It's a national campaign. So consequently, fundraising it will be a national enterprise. Yeah. Uh, as soon as things kind of meet themselves yeah. out, and that's my point. Anyone expecting a Democrat, with the fact that Republicans control all the statewide offices and the House and the Senate. It's not reasonable to expect a Democrat to raise that type of money within the state of Georgia. Well, it,
3: I get, let, me, let me ask you. Okay, is, so how much how much does it does it hurt Democrats to, to actually to have these these huge contests going on? You've you've got a, a just an extraordinarily expensive presidential race, and you've got two two U.S. Senate races. Is that going to suck up money? I mean, is it is is it going to hurt everybody down the line?
1: Oh, absolutely. I was speaking to a Republican friend of mine who's running for the U.S. Congress. And one of the things he told me yesterday at a MARTA event is that what's different now is that even Governor Kemp and others are raising money, that we're on a four-year fundraising cycle. It's no longer a two-year cycle. So you have people not just running in uh, 19, but those who will be running in 2020, 2022, are already out there raising money because it's just such a contentious a moment in time, and
4: that creates a time. You want to speak to that? I think that's the real test, right? John Ossoff raised the $40 million in a special election when nothing else was going on in the country. Stacey Abrams was able to raise $50 million nationally, maybe more when you add in all the super PACs and everything, because there was not a presidential cycle and there weren't that many other Democratic races going on. The same is somewhat true for Republicans, but I I think it's going to be a real interesting test. Uh, Democrats know that Georgia is a potential battleground. That's what my, I use the word potential. I'm not sure it's verified out yet. But but if it is, can they allocate the resources? you got two Senate seats, the electoral votes or you are going to have to fund a presidential campaign if, the, if they want to win Georgia's presidentially. That's more money than they're used to raising when there's everything else going on around the country. I think it's just an open question. So
2: OK, so, Audrey, i um You know, Michael Thurman makes his point that uh, essentially what he's saying is that once the Democrats have a nominee, there will be national money coming in to help fill the coffers, that it can't all come from Georgia anymore. But I wonder if you're a Democratic candidate right now and you have not demonstrated a powerful ability to raise money, whether that's going to make it more – is that going to be a signal down the road to those national interests, especially when you got two Senate races going on, that maybe they ought not to make an investment in your race? You've got to show some fundraising from the very beginning, ability from the beginning, don't you?
0: Well, you do, but you're also making an assumption about um, – how coordinated and thoughtful all of those those decisions are in the first place. Where, you know, often in a campaign we'd like to think that there is one group sitting down planning out where all the money's gonna go and they're strategizing. But in essence you have lots of interest groups, you've got lots of political party Organizations at various levels—they have different ideas about what's going to work. So I would say for Teresa Tomlinson right now, especially, at least she is out there. She got a story. She's talking about her strategy. The more that she can get her message out and get attention, that's what money's used for. Okay, you know,
3: you know, you know I, I find I find very interesting. Okay, yes, on in Senate race number one, uh, the David Produce seat on the Democratic side, you do have all this activity. But as we all know, including Mr. Thurman, on the other side in the race number two for the Johnny Isaacson seat, everybody is holding their cards very, very close to the vest. I think we've got one declared. We've got Matt Lieberman, the one declared uh, Democrat in there. Everybody else is 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 holding back. I think you're going to see. I mean, we have been projecting a, a large field for, for for this race because it's it's going to have have uh it's it's uh, it's it's first uh, ballot test. In, in November. Yeah. No primary. No primaries. Okay. So, but I, I think with, with with the pressure for, for gathering up money, you could have a very, very restricted field in this.
4: I think you really could. It goes back to the, with the presidential campaign and, and the fact that, in theory, it should be a kind of free-for-all for the Isaacson seat number two. I do think money's going to be a restrictor. I think, look, on the Democratic side, we can't forget Stacey Abrams, Right. A blessing from Stacey Abrams is a big deal and can clear a lot of decks on the Democratic side in a way that we haven't seen in the modern era recently. And on the Republican side, everybody's waiting on to see what Governor Kemp decides to choose, you know, chooses as, as the replacement. And that could clear the decks primarily on the Republican side. So.
2: So to close out this part of the conversation, Michael Thurman, uh, we uh, would a Democrat who might be interested in that race, number two, is it smart To wait until we know who the governor picks on the Republican side, as he's kind of referred to a second ago, before you jump in? Or is this an opportunity missed to get ahead of the game and jump in earlier, start getting a message out and some fundraising moving forward?
1: The situation that Jim just described, in my mind, is a sign of maturation within the Democratic Party. You want to win You know, it's okay to win a nomination. I've done that. I got that on my wall. But it doesn't get you a seat in the US Senate. So what I see happening within, and I don't want to talk too much, but what I understand and what I see and what I feel is that Democratic leaders are acting in a much more thoughtful, strategic way. And consequently, this, I think, at the end of the day, will put us in a better position to be victorious. Uh, It's not about ego. It's about who and how we can position ourselves to be more successful on election day. After you've lost statewide races for 20 straight years, you approach these from a very different perspective. All right, we're gonna watch
2: how it unfolds. Uh, Jim Galloway, let's turn to another story that developed just this morning. Brian Kemp, the governor, has been uh, rolling out his his plans for Medicaid and for ACA late last week. He announced the waiver that he's seeking for uh, making ACA giving some uh, some sustainability, some uh, options for people to get get some supplemental help. That's those are the words I'm looking for, right. mm-hmm. uh, and and that's all well and good. The other part of what he announced last week that seems to be much more controversial, is that he said uh, he wants to pull Georgia out of the federal exchange and essentially launch a Georgia exchange. When you go to healthcare.gov, instead of getting the federal site, you'll instead be redirected to a site established by the state where you'll have options for private insurers who might uh, uh, you might want to shop with uh, for insurance. All right. We've talked about that to some extent tomorrow. Among the other panelists, Andy Miller will be here of Georgia Health News. We'll get into that much more uh, uh, specifically tomorrow. But I want to talk about what he did today. Today, he announced the Medicaid waiver, the partial expansion of Medicaid. And what's going to be controversial about it, I imagine, is that he tied a work requirement to the plan. And... um, that's already been federal courts in other states that have done this have already said you can't do that. The Kemp people say they've got a different approach that they think will maybe pass muster. Nevertheless, it's going to be controversial. Right, and
3: and and to tell you the truth, most of these people who would qualify for for Medicaid expansion under the ACA are in fact working. It that's this is the problem. The problem is that we have had a a a work based. Uh, a healthcare system that has broken down, and you've had uh, you've had these businesses uh, separate themselves from from health insurance, so the from the health insurance po- policy. I think that the the big thing to look at, and and you're right, Andy Andy Miller is the the guy to talk to, not me, about this. But when you have four hundred and eight thousand uh, people who might be uh, eligible for Medicaid expansion, and your plan addresses fifty thousand, only temporarily, that to me that that does that it it, it does two things. It doesn't help uh, lower that number very much of uninsured, but more importantly, it, it that doesn't sound like something that is going to help rural hospitals or 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 other care centers across the, the so, state. So,
2: Audrey, uh, the governor's office. I talked to uh, the governor's press secretary uh, this morning and asked him questions uh, to help us with this discussion today. And, and I did ask him about that 50,000 number, which his office says that's what we'll expand to. What they would say is that's a baseline, that based on right now uh, people who are employed, people who have met the poverty requirements, right now there are 50,000 of those people. They would presume that if this waiver uh, is, is in fact, put into effect, that it will be an incentive for more people to uh, meet the requirements for job training or work, whatever it is, and start raising that number substantially. But that's speculation.
0: Right. It's speculation, but um, it's something that they're concerned about. I mean, there are real concerns about the coverage of health care. And there are interest groups right now in the rural community with hospitals, hospitals, people who are representing the undercover, this will continue to be a political issue and it is in their best interest to, to deal with it as best they can.
2: Michael, um, Grady Hospital released a statement this morning after looking at the uh, proposal and said they're deeply disappointed. Um, it, it, and at a time when healthcare, we saw in 2018 how important healthcare was as an issue in a campaign. What do you think about the f- fact that, that he is sticking to what he said throughout a 2018 campaign about not doing a, a, a general expansion of Medicaid to all, all people in the state who, who can meet the requirements?
1: Well, A for effort, but I'd I suggest that it's not a partial expansion. It's an incremental expansion. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Republicans, in, particularly in the suburbs, were damaged politically, by lack of a health care strategy uh, in 2018. So I see this as more of a response to that. Mm-hmm. The big challenge is that if this becomes, uh, at least the narrative is, that it's just an attack against the American uh, Affordable Care Act, then it's just politics mm-hmm. as usual. And unfortunately, that is how it is being portrayed. Now, as someone who knows a little bit about work requirements, having ran defects and the Labor Department, that is a huge challenge to implement and, and orchestrate and oversee. And it's almost impossible in the context of healthcare. And what the court's are rule is, and by the way, if you really think about it, the work repri- requirement is basically a poison pill. Even if you pass it, it's going to be held in abeyance by the federal courts. So consequently, you could benefit from the politics but not be responsible for the implementation because of the work requirement.
2: So, so do you want to make a comment? Because i got a question for you, but go sure, ahead. Sure. Then.
4: I think that this proposal actually goes back to the way we should have attempted to do health care reform in the first place. Right. Uh, it's, it's letting the states experiment with different ways to expand Medicaid and possibly Medicare, but do it differently based on the populations that they have. And and, uh, Governor Kemp, I think, has done a responsible measure here in trying to tweak and ask the administration for a waiver on the way we handle insurance to see if we can do it less expensively than California and New York and other places. And then today he came forward with an opportunity for all 408,000 people who would be otherwise eligible uh, to, to come forward and have a chance at getting uh, Medicaid. However, he did put back into it a virtue, which I think is very important, which is individual responsibility. It's not just a work requirement. I think they've learned from other states mm-hmm. and from the federal judges. Yeah. Uh, there's an opportunity for job training, there's opportunity for nonprofit uh, volunteerism, community service, and other things. So I think it's going to be up to some local communities. It's going to be up to these mega health systems to do what they did when the ACA came out. Remember, when the ACA first came out, not everybody rushed to sign up. There was an education effort, an information effort. There had to be grassroots campaigns. Uh, good gracious, the federal government paid people to go door-to-door to try to sign people up on the ACA. I think that... It's a good experiment. Uh, Governor Kemp has proven himself to be that if it works, it's going to go way beyond the initial 50000 uh, as people start to hear about it, understand it. And we do it in a fiscally responsible way so that we learn vis-a-vis what California and New York have done, which is extremely expensive, going to break their budgets over the next 10 years. Uh, and we, we do have an attempt to get there. Now, good critics can say it didn't go all the way. A lot of discussion about Medicare for all and Medicaid for all, but... I like the principle of trying to get somebody to give something back as long as they're able bodied, right? We got to have some dispensation for those who can't work, who can't get out to volunteer. It's a call to action to get involved in your community. Hopefully, we'll all respond the the right way.
0: Well, I was going to add to that, too, that we, um, there are about 35. or so states who have uh, expanded Medicaid. And the variety that you see in how many people are covered, it could range from 10,000 that were a part of the expansion to 300,000 changes. Um, but one of the concerns some of them have had when they've had to roll back the process was cost. So, again, whether it's a Democrat in the, in the governorship or Republican, they're still going to have to deal with the hard issue that health insurance Um, And health care are very expensive.
2: Okay, I've got to get uh, to our first break of the show, although uh, I do want to uh, share with you all uh, one of our Facebook Live viewers uh, sent us an interesting message, Jim. He he said that it would be interesting in terms of the Purdue uh, talk at Rotary to apply the Rotary International four-way test. First, is it the truth? Second, is it fair to all concerned? Third, will it build goodwill and better friendships? Fourth, will it be beneficial to all concerned? So I leave that up to everyone (laughs) who's listening to the show to decide how any politician going before Rotary does in meeting the Rotary uh, tests. Uh, This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back.
4: Time to clean up the garage? Start with that vehicle you no longer need and donate it to this station. It's easy. Pickup is free. It could be worth hundreds of dollars in support, and you could even get a tax
1: deduction. Get the process started today. Give us a call to learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle, and thanks very much for your support. Call
0: 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org slash cars. On the next Fresh Air. Help me lay my weapons down. Help me get Alison Moore, the country music singer, has a new memoir that's about coming to terms with the murder-suicide of her parents in 1986 when she and her sister, singer Shelby Lynn, were teenagers. Join us.
3: Fresh air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org.
2: Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Here we are, our brand new studio uh, here on the radio side of GPB. Joined today by uh, Professor Audrey Haynes from the University of Georgia, Michael Thurman, CEO of DeKalb County, uh, Heath Garrett, a uh, Republican political consultant and advisor to Johnny Isaacson, which is, I think, the credential that most people know him best by. And, of course, Jim Galloway is with me. Uh, just very briefly before we keep going, I want to mention a couple of political rewinds coming up. As I mentioned, um, among others, Tomorrow, um, we're going to have Andy Miller here to get to a somewhat deeper dive into the new plans uh, for the waivers that Governor Kemp has announced. Uh, So that ought to be interesting. Terry Anulowicz and uh, Jackie Cushman uh, will be here as well. Wednesday, uh, though, we're going to uh, talk with uh, Speaker David Ralston, which should be pretty interesting. We expect to do a good portion of the show with the speaker as he starts getting set for the session coming up in January. And then Friday, we'll have the Georgia Democratic Party chair, Nakima Williams, in here uh, to talk about the upcoming debate in Atlanta, among other things. And Jim Galloway. We are finally able to say, by the way, yes, it is now official. We've all known for some time and have been saying publicly that the debate was going to be held at Tyler Perry's studio. Yeah, we
3: broke that 10 days ago.
2: Yeah, (sighs) but apparently, apparently what Democratic Party folks are saying is it, there were some contractual things they needed to work out. We don't know if it's a DNC issue, an MSNBC issue, but it, it's taken longer than it probably should have to get all this together.
3: And it's and, and, and this is going to be, this is not at a public venue. You're not dealing with, you know, a, a, a state authority or a, a, a city authority. You're you're dealing with a, a private individual.
2: Yeah, yeah. All right, let's move on. I want to go back. If I can circle back to the Senate race for just a minute. Audrey, let me start with you on this. Uh Because I I didn't do this when we were talking about the race number one, and and I'm interested in your observations about this. We talked about Teresa Tomlinson, uh, former mayor of Columbus. She opened her main campaign headquarters this weekend. She did not open them in metro Atlanta, as virtually every statewide candidate does, no matter what part of the state they are from. She opened in Columbus. And she believes this is part of this larger effort, a symbolic effort at the very least, to make inroads into rural Georgia. Yes? No? What do you think?
0: Well, it's certainly symbolic. There's nothing wrong with that. It garnered her some attention for doing something that was outside of the box. Is she likely to have an office in Atlanta? Of course, because that's where there are a lot of people and strategists and money and so on. But um, I think that is something innovative. She needed to do that. She needs to get her name out there. And if you read the speech that she gave, it was it was inspiring. It it had a lot of really good material in there.
3: Yeah, it, it address it does address the the uh, the tactic that has been uh, developed by Sonny and David Perdue, and was followed by Brian Kemp of 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 uh, of, of really emphasizing uh, turnout Republican turnout in the in the in the rural areas of Georgia and, and this is where she thinks that where, – where, where Teresa Tomlinson sa- says that she wants to kind of break the hole or at least loosen the hold of, of Republicans. And it might be a little bit convenient given that uh, uh, office space is much cheaper in Columbus and, and, there, and there are financial issues to worry about. OK.
4: <laughs> I, like, I like to compliment Democrats when I can. And I do think being, being from <laughs> Albany, Georgia, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited that she actually has her headquarters outside of Metro Atlanta, even though I live here now. Lots of family and friends who live outside the metropolitan hey, you're area. You're an Albany boy. I'm an Albany boy. And, 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 and it's Albany. God, God's, God's country and uh, it's great people. Uh, I think it's good for the state to have candidates from outside of core Metro Atlanta uh, on every ballot. Uh, and I do think it's smart politics for the Democrats. Jim hits it in, in nail on the head. Right? Can she put a dent into what we as Republicans are doing and running up? I'm talking about ninety percent of the votes in certain right, counties right, right. in rural Georgia, um, and so I think it's a, it's an interesting tactic, and I think it'll be interesting to see, as uh, our CEO uh, just said, in the maturation process of the Democratic Party, can she make inroads back into the four or five core counties right around Atlanta, Georgia? Yeah, and, and, I, I know personally she can, and with with L- with, will with she?
3: yeah, with campaigns campaigns becoming more and more virtual. Uh, and, and internet-based, you know, maybe, loc- location doesn't matter quite as much. Well,
1: I agree with and that. Heath is right, and Jim, and, you know, I thought about it, and I'm like, wait a minute. First, she's trying to win the Democratic primary. Yes. So it's even smarter from that perspective, because if you look at Democratic vote, obviously the majority of it is in Metro, but there's a large non-Metro Atlanta Democratic vote that she was really messaging to. It stretches, it,
3: it stretches from Columbus to Augusta, through yeah, Macon.
1: Through she, Macon, through Albany, through Valdosta, and all environs south of metro Atlanta. So to that extent, it was smart. I mean, she's from DeKalb County. I mean, her parents live in DeKalb County. So that's extending your base, and that's what you have to do in order to win statewide. Michael,
2: one of the lines she gave on this was she said this. Let me tell you how you win this election. You run a formidable woman from outside metro Atlanta with good name recognition and reputation in central and south Georgia. And we will torpedo the Republican rural strategy, and David Perdue will never win this race. Woo! That's strong.
1: (laughs) That is strong. Well I'm happy that we got four good candidates in Senate. (laughs) Yeah, no. we, We got really four great candidates including Teresa. Uh, in uh, Senate seat number one, and I think it bowls well going
2: forward. Yeah, look, because, hey, Twitter and Facebook, just back off. I was not suggesting that makes her the <laughs> ideal candidate. I was just saying it was a strong way to launch a uh, campaign. I'm your for you, no, Bill. I was
1: covering <laughs> your flight for you. Don't no, no, worry about and, it. I'm your wingman. And, <laughs> and
0: I'll argue from the the political science side, strategically very often candidates will spend too much time thinking I'm in my little – urban area or the area of the city and all the votes are there and they'll neglect that. And guess what? They, they often may lose a primary. I mean, that's very important in the primary. And
1: we we do need to get back to rural Georgia. I grew up in rural Georgia too. I mean, near Athens. I'm really not from Athens. I'm from near Athens, uh, which means you grew up in the country. So it would be in the Democrats' best interest or anyone seeking political office is not to write off any area or demographic. All right. I was
2: so let's stick with uh, campaign news for a few minutes, uh, Mr. Galloway. The uh, uh, jolt, I think it was the jolt this morning. If not the jolt, it was certainly in the AJC this morning. Uh, this weekend, the Trump Georgia campaign brought together a large group of people for what they were calling a dry run. It sounded to me like it's more like a rally. Uh, uh, yeah, this
3: was a, a Cobb County uh, at, the, at the Cobb County Saturday breakfast. I believe. Right.
2: OK. And um, and. What was it, – it, it, of note about it, I think, is how quickly the Georgia Trump folks were able to adjust to what is apparently the new message in defending against impeachment, which is, uh, OK, yeah, now we're going to have open hearings. OK, yeah, now we're going to see the transcripts. OK, we're going to learn more about the quid pro quo, but quid pro quos are just fine.
3: It, yes. It, <laughs> it, it, it was, it, or, or it was wrong, but it, Im, impeachable. Yeah. And right. so, so it's 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 look, it's gonna. Your Republicans are gonna have to be a little quick on their feet, as uh, as as these things uh, open up. They just, uh, I mean, uh, just this this morning we had uh, uh, two of the uh, uh, the testimonies, uh, the transcripts re- uh, released. I think I haven't gone through yes. them yet. Right. Uh, and and we're going to get to public hearings. I think by if not next week, the week following. So yeah, it's it's going to be. Uh, uh, pretty delicate. If I could, if I could just uh, just ask, Mister. Now that we've got a, a oh a, good, <laughs> Mister. M- m- Garrett here. Okay, th- no, this is a really a logistical question. Okay, Johnny Isaacson has set his his resignation date for December thirty first. Okay, he has. All right, uh, maybe we get the articles of impeachment voted out of the House just before Christmas. Okay, trial hits boom. Uh, if if if, if trial begins immediately, does that – I mean, does – has anybody – any thought – there's been some Republican suggestion that Johnny might think about staying on for an extra week or two just to get through the impeachment process. The, the
4: one question I didn't want you to ask. Uh, it, it, the <laughs> timeline, it is possible. We've thought about this. I was with Senator this morning. Uh, I've not had the courage to lay that out in front of him directly. Uh, to get his uh, to get his opinion yet, uh, December 31st is a pretty hard deadline for him. And if anything, it was maybe a month or two longer than where he really would have liked to have done. He was doing that to give the staff and the Senate and the state of Georgia and the governor an opportunity to get their feet under them and not thrust more chaos than is already being thrust upon the state. And he is regretful that this is even happening. But... Uh, uh, I do think that a couple of weeks ago it was pretty clear that if there was going to be a trial, it might have been in the early or mid part of December.
3: Right, at right. At this
4: point in time, this wasn't going to be an issue. Uh, there have been no calls from anybody to talk to him about it that I'm aware of yet. I do know that there's got to be some people in Washington thinking about it. I don't want to speak for him because, you know, his call and duty to public service is really uh, overwhelming in his life. But uh, Parkinson's is, is, is also overwhelming right now at this point in time. And so... I don't think there are any plans for him to stay beyond December 31st. But you know,
2: Audrey, we're dealing at this with point. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Heath, I didn't that's mean to. Interrupt fine. You. I mean to give
4: you a long answer but that's No, that's, that's, that's what, how I'm he's glad you gave it. it
2: that way. Be, and because here's why, Audrey. I mean, we're all very sensitive to the difficult uh, struggle, um, health struggle that Johnny Isaacson is dealing with right now and it obviously will play a role into, you know, a trial starting in January the, the Clinton impeachment trial lasted more than 4 weeks. Um but if you just looked at it, from a pure, at it from a purely political point of view, Johnny Isaacson if he can handle it, would be doing the Republican uh, choice quite a service if he's the one who votes on the impeachment inquiry, protecting the Republican who's going to run in the special election in 2020 from having to be the person to cast that same vote.
0: Well, that may be something that he considers. But in some ways, um, when you're dealing with something that um, – Impactful in your life, it may not be a real choice that you have. Right,
4: I think it's fascinating. And look, there's no question those calls are coming. Right, if it's anywhere near December 31st, we we fully expect the White House and others, the Senate Majority Leader. Nobody thinks that if somebody gets if they get sworn in on January the first. <laughs> And right. That's the very first thing they're having to do. Take the politics aside from just poli- Logistic, public, logistically, it just be it, it's a, a it's a terrible thing to have to consider. And look, I mean, just we all know Johnny well. I don't think any of us wants his last act to be an impeachment trial, uh, given what that would do to uh, his 40 years of otherwise dedicated public service. But that's a real reality, Jim. M- Mike, want away in? No,
1: uh, Senator Iserson is one of the most honorable political leaders that I've had the honor to know. And I think at the end of the day, he's going to do what he believes, as he's always done, what's in the best interest of the United States of America and the people of Georgia and these political mechanizations and strategies. Uh, he'll do what he's always done. He's going to do what's right as opposed to what's expedient. All right. And one option is is, yeah. that,
4: is that, the, that the governor can hold off on swearing somebody in, right? There's no constitutional ah, requirement that... Yeah. Somebody, that ta- but sir. that takes
2: one Republican vote away from impeachment on this. Sir. And I think that if, 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 yeah. if, you, if
3: you've done your vote count, right. then it might not matter. It might not matter at all. All right,
2: be, that'd that'd be, all. All right I've got to get. Did you want You get the last word, Mr. Thurmond.
1: Impeachment. It's a purely political process. House will vote to impeach. There are not sixty votes in the Senate as we sit here. Yeah. We all know it. It's all the right. politics of the moment. We're going to get to
2: a break. Uh, one last thing before we do. I thought one of the most interesting comments made during this uh, this Georgia Trump uh, meeting in Cobb County. Uh, Barry Loudermilk, Representative Loudermilk, made a comment that will make Republicans laugh and uh, Democrats uh, infuriated about. He's, he essentially said... That given who Donald Trump is, if he had, for instance, colluded with Russia in 2016, he would have, quote, bragged about it, (laughs) which does seem to be the style of the president of the United States. It's interesting, though, that we've got uh, this kind of reading from even Republicans when they talk about Donald Trump. All right. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, let's talk about voting machinery. Just how are you going to vote? in March in the presidential primary. This is Political Rewind.
0: I'm Sandy Scott, Director of Marketing at the Booth Western Art Museum in Cartersville, Georgia. The Booth Museum is a 120,000 square foot art museum that also has a presidential gallery. The museum is actually the largest Western art museum in the Southeast. We underwrite with GPB because it reaches a, a multitude of people that we normally would not reach. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. Many migrant families who cross the southern U.S. border have headed to places where unskilled jobs are plentiful, and those towns have had to adjust to the changing demographics.
3: It's kind of like getting fat. You don't get fat all at once, you put weight on a little bit of time, so you adjust. You notice it, but you adapt.
0: More from Cactus, Texas, this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
3: Four till seven today on GPB, gpbnews.org, and you can listen live on the GPB apps.
2: We're back on uh, Political Rewind. Um, Jim, a quick quick, uh, uh, note about elections tomorrow. Of course, we've got a lot of municipal elections going on around the state of Georgia. Too many for us to talk about them with any depth here on Political Rewind, but I think uh, the GPB news page has a link that you can go to if you're uncertain about what kind, what elections are happening in your community or if you want to see what's going on in other communities. Uh, Michael Thurman has one. Uh, as long as you're in the studio, you've got a, a, a vote over. The only thing on the ballot for us to Cab County residents is the composition of your ethics uh, board. Yes, and
1: unincorporated the cap. Yes. We got a big mayor's race in Dunwoody yes. and Stonecrest. Yes, But uh, we have to now, the court, Supreme Court ruled that our ethics board was uh, violated the state constitution in terms of appointment. There is legislation to be voted on tomorrow to determine uh, whether or not we will have an ethics board or whether we'll continue with an ethics board in abeyance until the legislature acts again. If it fails, that means it goes back to the legislature and status quo continues, which means that we do not have an entity that that uh, authorizes ethical oversight for the cab.
2: You know, Thurman, it's a wonder you still look as young as you do, given the issues you deal with in the cab county. Why you say that, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> what?
1: <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Jim Galloway, a
2: quick other note. Uh Tomorrow, there's a fascinating—we have several governor's races coming up, uh, one tomorrow in Mississippi, the other in Kentucky, Louisiana, is right down the road. But the the governor's race in Kentucky is going to get a lot of attention because you've got a Republican incumbent, very conservative Republican incumbent, uh, Matt Bevin, been very closely aligned with President Trump, and uh, his Democratic opponent, Andy Beshears, has been running pretty close to him in the polls, although I think— Bevins has pulled out, just a, pulled a little ahead in the final days of this race. But I think
3: what Trump Trump won by double digits yeah. in in yeah. Kentucky, and if it's yeah. if it's close, this again, this is going to be like these congressional races that we've seen all throughout. It's you're not you're not looking for the winner, you're
2: looking for the spread. Heath, are all elections now about President Trump?
4: Uh, exactly how he would like it. Would like <laughs> all elections are it, to some point about Donald Trump, but I gave a speech earlier today. It's about Donald Trump and who the Democrats have nominated in the slot they're running for. So Stacey Abrams w- was a great candidate for the Democrats, right? I try to say something nice, um, and and so she overperformed in a lot of ways and was able to use Donald Trump very effectively. Some Democrats do, some Democrats don't, but there's no question. It, it's it's all about Donald Trump, local elections, and. A national elections. Yeah, tournament. so we're going to watch that Kentucky race pretty closely, Audrey.
0: So I would argue from a, a, the long view that that is probably what's the worst thing that could happen in, this, in a state or the country because, for example, in Kentucky, I mean, they, they have some real problems. They have some real issues. Um, the teacher salaries there and health care as well. O- Opioid opio- addiction as well. And if we're only making everything a referendum on Trump, Uh, That really is a problem.
2: That's a great point. Michael Thurman. Uh,
1: I agree with Audrey. I mean, it's Trump. But look, if you're unemployed, if you don't have health care, if you're suffering in traffic, all the issues, if if, if your public education system is not what it should be, what you're angry with is this maniacal kind of view and focus on Donald Trump, who, by the way, ultimately may not or has not addressed these issues. So I think average people who are still trying to raise families and pay bills, it's not just Trump. It's every it's Trump and all the other elected officials. What have you done to really improve the quality of my life at the end of the day? Uh, right now, the economy is kind of—I'm telling you, if, if some have predicted a slowdown or even a recession, we got to wait to next year to really determine what the landscape will really look like. Uh, it's way too early to determine who will win because no one really knows right now um, because we don't know what the economic environment will
2: you, be. You're all echoing a theme that E.J. Dion, the uh, terrific columnist for The Washington Post, uh, wrote about this weekend. Uh, Heath, he wrote, uh, all elections used to be local. <laughs> <And> <laughs> that, was the, that was down. the thing we always said. All elections are local. I do want to
4: add, because there's a theme in our, our conversations on the show, but there is an undercard in Kentucky, which is interesting to watch. Uh, we may elect the first African-American attorney general as a Republican in Kentucky who was Mitch McConnell's general counsel, and that is a local spin on a kind of different from Trump world kind of scenario, and he's a rising star in the Republican What's party. his name? Daniel Cameron.
2: You know, it's of course I didn't think about this, Jim Galloway, but nobody's going to be paying closer attention to the governor's race tomorrow, and maybe the AG's race than Mitch McConnell himself, who's on the ballot next year and who is already a little nervous about exactly what might happen to him. Yeah, I, I, I think he's in.
3: I think he is probably in better better shape than Blevin.
2: I well, think. probably, but you know, still he's going to get a, a, a sense no, no, of how no, voters no, exactly. are leaving.
4: No, no, absolutely. And, yeah, nobody can predict what next November is going to there be are like. some
1: polls that show that even the race in Mississippi is closer yeah. than what it should be. Right. So to right. me, if you are a – Trump supporter or Republican, you really should be concerned if either one of those races right. are within five points.
3: I think as long as we're talking about uh, talking about prognostication, I, w- I would just say I would point you to the New York Times story that was the the battleground polling that they've been doing state it's, by state.
2: We're going to get into that in much more depth tomorrow. But you you are right. That's a huge story, and you can tell us the headline is. Well, the the, the
3: headline is that that that. Uh, Donald Trump could could pull out an electoral college victory.
2: Again. The, yes. the only Democrat who is ahead of Trump in, I think, five of those six battleground states is Joe Biden, uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, who they also tested, are behind. I think in one, one of them is ahead of Trump in one state. But yes, and Trump it, seems to be leading in these battleground states against everybody but Biden.
0: Yes. And isn't the irony that... You know, he potentially never even had to uh, initiate a quid pro quo because Biden probably would have imploded anyhow, given his performance in the debates. What, what a waste and what well, an irony.
1: I, I think Trump is smart. Biden is his top challenger. And I don't know whether he's imploded or not. I think he's going to do extremely well once he gets into more diverse populations.
2: All right, let me – one last uh, subject that we only have a couple minutes for now, Jim Galloway, but I think it's an important one. Um, We're getting our first test in some of these elections tomorrow, and we've seen it in early voting last week of the new voting system. Right. And your paper had a big piece this weekend. Saying, boy, trying to get all these machines in place across the state of Georgia by March 24th is an incredible challenge, and nobody's sure we can do I it. I
3: could be wrong on the number, but I think – 26th
2: or 24th is the – oh, go ahead. 170,000 machines or something. I mean, yeah. it is I mean, it
3: is the, the biggest purchase of, of voting machines and installation of voting
2: machines in the country ever. Yeah. And and Dominion, which is a company that sold the machines to the state, won the contract, is frantic about getting this done. But Heath Garrett, what's scary about this, and we really are running out of time, is the possibility this is going to be
4: one more reason people don't trust the results of an election
2: if it isn't all done exactly right.
4: You know, that's an unfortunate part of it but you know d- democracy is a messy process right and it wasn't perfect uh, 20 years ago it wasn't perfect 10 years ago i think we need to give a little context to this and the good news is the old machines will still be around mm-hmm. if they're not working then it won't be they won't be ready for the march 24th presidential then then we'll push that to the primary so there is a little give there it's not ideal But uh, I do do think that they can do it, and they've actually provided the resources to do it.
2: All right. i got to cut the conversation off. I wish I didn't have to do it. We are completely out of time. But I'm so glad you were all with us. Michael Thurman, Audrey Haynes, he's Garrett, Jim Galloway. Thank you for inaugurating the New Talk Studio here at Georgia Public Radio. It's so cool to be in here. I hope you all are enjoying it out there on Facebook Live. As I watch your comments, it seems like you are. By the way, if you can't watch us on Facebook Live, if you can't listen to us on the radio when we're on live, you can always go to our podcast, which you can get wherever podcasts are available, and I hope you do just that. We're back tomorrow at 2. I'm Bill Nigget See you then.